You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 64th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, where I discuss what does mental health look like. I will leave references from today's podcast in the notes section if you would like to research further. If you liked today's episode, be sure to leave me a review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at the Relationship Center on Facebook or Instagram. When most people hear the phrase mental health, they immediately think of mental illness. This needs to change. When you ask someone about their physical health, they don't have reason to think you're using code to ask about their physical maladies. Why is this so with mental health? My theory is that it's due to the stigma that surrounds mental distress. Historically, people have seen mental distress much the way addiction was viewed in the early days, as a character defect. When someone suffered from mental distress, depending on their diagnosis, mentally healthy people tended to distance themselves. This may have occurred for a variety of reasons. People with emotional challenges were viewed as weird and sometimes even dangerous. People typically feel ineffectual and at a loss to help a person under mental distress. There's a fear that they could say something that could make the situation worse. Some people even have the irrational fear that whatever the other person has could be contagious. And I think that people tend to invest their time and energy in areas where they have experience, competence, and impact. For the average person without training, there is not a lot you can do for someone experiencing emotional distress to help them stop feeling what they're feeling. And sometimes, even when you do have training, if your training's been in the medical model of mental illness, your ability to impact the effects of mental distress may not be as high as you'd like, because a lot depends on the psychopharmacology of the situation. If our conceptualization of the problem is inaccurate, then how can we form workable solutions? We must understand the etiology of mental distress. Yes, I use the term mental distress to substitute what others might call mental illness. The one thing people diagnosed with schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, ADHD, conduct disorder, eating disorders, addictions, etc. have in common is mental distress. It's the common denominator that connects all of it. Mental distress is caused by something. People do not have a wonderfully full and happy life with healthy relationships and suddenly become attacked by some unknown, elusive mental illness. There is no illness. There are no medical tests to diagnose these so-called maladies. What about the chemical imbalances, you say? Let's talk about those for a minute. Are you aware that there are no tests to measure chemical imbalances in the brain? It's simply a hypothesis that there must be imbalances because of the so-called crazy behavior. The general public and mental health professionals have been fed this story of chemical imbalances for so long that it's come to be accepted as a statement of fact. It is not. Ask any psychiatrist about evidence of chemical imbalances, and if they're honest, they'll have to admit that after searching for that evidence for decades, psychiatry isn't looking anymore. There's no evidence of imbalances in the brain. What does this mean for the future of psychopharmacology? 
I'd like to tell you that it will be a thing of the past, but I don't think that's true because it will depend on how strong the lobbying is for a disinformation campaign. Someone has to care enough to make psychiatry and psychopharmacology tell the truth. Unfortunately, Jerry McGuire said it best when he said, follow the money. Psychiatry wanted a place at the medical table in the 1950s when they were seen as doctors who really weren't doctors because all they did was talk to people. To get a prize seat at the medical table, the idea that chemical imbalances must play a role in many psychiatric disorders such as schizophrenia, depression, and bipolar disorder was postulated. Many studies were done to try to prove this correlation, but no evidence could be found. At the same time this was happening, Big Pharma glammed onto this idea and began producing psychotropic medication to cure these so-called imbalances. Astonishingly, the medications did seem to alleviate some of the suffering of mental patients, so they used this as proof that the chemical imbalance must exist. Dr. Terry Lynch, author of The Depression Delusion, answers this claim by saying, Sure, antidepressant medications appear to work because they're drugs that are designed to make a person feel better. He's also quick to point out that heroin is also a drug designed to make its users feel better, and they do. But that's not used as proof to say they have a heroin imbalance. Dr. William Glasser was often heard to say, Using psychotropic medication for mental illness is like prescribing Novocaine for tooth decay. It will take the pain away, but it will do nothing to remedy the underlying cause of the decay. Furthermore, the chemical imbalance theory is often used to tell patients that they'll need these medications for life. This simply is untrue. People with diagnoses from the DSM-5 that have been known to benefit from medications are told their condition is like diabetes. This is a big lie. There are diagnostic tests to determine if your body is not producing the insulin it requires for optimal functioning. This is not true for any mental health diagnosis. Then there's the withdrawal effect, further providing evidence for doctors to underscore the idea that the patient will need to take this medication for life. Whenever a patient attempts to come off their medication, either in a cold turkey way or with a doctor's supervised slow taper, there is a known withdrawal effect experienced by many patients. I say this is known, but only in some communities. Many physicians deny the existence of this withdrawal effect and instead use the phenomenon to support how the patient needs their medication forever. Imagine you have an event in your life that's distressing to you. Someone dies. You've been attacked. You have serious financial problems. You get divorced and it wasn't your idea. You lose a job and you feel extremely sad about it. This sadness is a normal response to your traumatic life event. There's nothing wrong with your brain. It's normal to experience sadness, anger, and anxiety in response to adverse painful life events and circumstances. If you begin to take an antidepressant for a chemical imbalance that doesn't exist, then your brain will develop a chemical imbalance due to your medication. The brain likes to maintain a level of homeostasis. It knows that you've added serotonin to the mix, so it will cease to produce its own serotonin. Then, when you stop taking the artificial drug, your brain has suppressed its own serotonin-producing capabilities, and you naturally experience depression as a result. 
In my own research, reading Dr. Peter Bregan's books and being a member of Drop the Disorder Facebook group where consumers speak of their experiences, I have heard former patients say that the only way to avoid this withdrawal effect is to reduce one's medication by one-tenth every month, one medication at a time. This means if you are on four medications, it would take 40 months to come off all your meds, an extremely slow process indeed. However, the withdrawal effect, while it doesn't affect everyone in the same way and some never even experience it, can be excruciating. The worst effect by far, in my opinion, is to come to the erroneous conclusion that you will need this drug for the rest of your life. I am not a doctor and I'm not giving medical advice. I'm going to point you to resources in the show notes that support what I'm saying so you can do your own research and draw your own conclusions. The withdrawal effect is one thing. So-called side effects of psychotropic drugs can be even more debilitating than the distress one is experiencing. Although at the serious level of distress, a person is willing to do anything that will provide relief and psychotropic drugs can provide that immediate relief a person is seeking. This becomes self-reinforcing. However, surely you've heard the side effects of medications listed on television commercials. They're horrific, including death. Three of the main side effects, or simply other effects, are weight gain, changes in sleep cycle, and decreased interest in sexual activity. This can cause a reduction of satisfying relationships in the client's life, something that's crucial to recovery. There is also another level where diagnoses and medication do harm. When a person learns they have a diagnosable mental illness, they may experience that with some relief, as now they have an answer to the question they've been asking themselves, what's wrong with me? However, that's really the wrong question. We shouldn't be asking what's wrong with the person. Instead, we should be investigating what's happened to them because that provides much more insight into the behaviors they've developed to compensate for the pain they're attempting to cope with. The flip side of having a diagnosis is that now the person has the answer to what's wrong with them and they risk the danger of leaning into that mental health persona, one of a victim of an illness they can't control. They need to adjust expectations of what they'll be able to accomplish and will need to take their medications for the rest of their lives. And when they develop a tolerance or their medicine stops having the desired effect, the dosage will either increase or another medication will be added to the regimen to achieve the desired effect. They accept this as a normal part of treating any medical disease, only it's not a medical disease. There's nothing wrong with their brain. Mental distress could be called a thinking malfunction. There are many thoughts, some conscious, others unconscious, that exist in the minds of people experiencing mental distress. Sometimes they take responsibility for the tragic event, trauma, series of traumas, or uncontrollable events in their lives and blame themselves for it. Like a person living in a domestic violence situation believes there are things they could have done or stopped doing that would have led to a different outcome. They believe they're permanently broken, never to be normal again. They can even develop a strong sense of self-loathing. All of this leads to the perpetuation of the initial symptoms of distress. 
until those who work with people with so-called mental disorders stop looking at them as medical problems to be solved and start looking at them as victims of something horrible who can recover by learning coping skills, strengthening resilience, and taking charge of a new normal in their lives, people diagnosed with mental health disorders will be living marginal existences. Why does this happen? There are not enough advocates for mental distress that are outside the medical community who can see it for what it is. There are best practice standards that have been written and serious consequences for mental health practitioners who don't follow them. One of the problems is that these best practice standards are not always best. They're based on research that's often funded by the pharmaceutical companies who have a vested interest in the outcomes. If you look at Dr. Peter Gochi's book, Mental Health Survival Kit and Withdrawal from Psychiatric Drugs, he writes about the truth of psychiatric drugs. Any research that went against the efficacy of psychiatric drugs was buried, and only those stories that show a marginal benefit were published. There is also a lot to learn regarding placebo studies. Most placebo studies show that there's a slight advantage to psych meds over placebos until the researchers did a double-blind experiment, meaning neither the researcher nor the patient knew which drug was the placebo and which one was the actual medication. And then they controlled for the side effects of the psychotropic drug, mainly by having the placebo give subjects dry mouth. When these conditions were met, the placebo actually has greater benefits than the psych meds. If you ask people in the field of mental health to define mental health, they are hard-pressed to come up with an answer that speaks to health. Definitions typically involve mental illness, or rather the absence of mental illness. But if there is no actual mental illness, how useful are definitions such as those? In an article titled, Toward a New Definition of Mental Health, it is reported that the World Health Organization defines mental health as a state of well-being in which the individual realizes his or her own abilities, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to his or her community. However, they don't see that definition as adequate and a new definition has been proposed. The new definition is this. Mental health is a dynamic state of internal equilibrium which enables individuals to use their abilities in harmony with universal values of society. Basic cognitive and social skills, ability to recognize, express, and modulate one's own emotions, as well as empathize with others, flexibility, and ability to cope with adverse life events and function in social roles, and harmonious relationship between body and mind represent important components of mental health, which contribute to varying degrees to the state of internal equilibrium. Dr. William Glasser has a long but rather accurate definition of mental health. He says, You are mentally healthy if you enjoy being with most of the people you know, especially the important people in your life, such as family, sexual partners, and friends. Generally, you're happy and are more than willing to help an unhappy family member, friend, or colleague to feel better. You lead a mostly tension-free life, laugh a lot, and rarely suffer from the aches and pains that so many people accept as an unavoidable part of living. You enjoy life and have no trouble accepting other people who think and act differently from you. 
it rarely occurs to you to criticize or try to change anyone. If you have differences with someone else, you'll try to work out the problem. If you can't, you'll walk away before you argue and increase the difficulty. You are creative in what you attempt and may enjoy more of your potential than you ever thought possible. Finally, even in very difficult situations when you're unhappy, no one can be happy all the time, you'll know why you're unhappy and attempt to do something about it. He emphasizes important issues related to true mental health, such as the importance of harmony in one's personal important relationships, a willingness to help others feel better, empathy, absence of aches and pains without a medical cause, acceptance of differences, a lack of desire to change others, and most importantly, the ability to recognize when one is unhappy and relatively quickly knows what to do to feel better in responsible, resilient ways. When we place people along a continuum of mental health that has serious dysfunction and mental and emotional distress at one end and Glasser's definition at the other end, it becomes easy to see that most individuals neither live in a state of terrible or excellent mental health. It's much like the continuum of physical health. Of course, we have people who are dying at one end and those who are prime physical specimens at the other end, but the majority of us are somewhere in the middle and where we are on that continuum fluctuates from day to day, situation to situation. It is a much healthier, more accurate view of mental health, which provides those at the lower end of the continuum an important commodity, hope. Hope that they are not victims of the medical model of mental illness, that they're in charge of their recovery, and that they can definitely improve with the proper therapy that doesn't treat them as if their only option is perpetual therapy with a medication cocktail on the side. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Ron Modern about how he uses choice theory in his practice. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.com the relationship center.biz forward slash podcast and remember to subscribe.